Judges 11. It's entitled, Jephthah Delivers Israel. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these, all his words before the Lord of Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Shion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that land. And they took, the, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemos, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, 
Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aroah and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent, that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroah to the neighbourhood of Minnath, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancers. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, Father, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, and I, my companions. I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel. But the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, Gileadite, four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. When any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibo, Shibaleth. And he said, Sibaleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. 
At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gideadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come now to uh, open your word and study it, we ask that you provide us with the understanding so that we know what you have to say to us and you show us how we can apply it to our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this morning's sermon is titled, entitled The Outcast Diplomat. In most Hollywood war movies, the Americans save the day. However, if we look at the major conflicts and wars America has been involved in, we see the Americans have not won many on their own or without help from other allies. America has won two wars by themselves without help from any nation, but both wars they started themselves. The first was the War of Independence, ending British colonial rule and led to the foundation of the nation we know today as the United States of America. The other was the American Civil War, which is remembered best as a war the Americans had with themselves. The American Civil War was a rebellion by the southern states against the northern states over slavery. The southern states were dependent on slavery and were determined not to let the northern states or President Lincoln abolish it. The Civil War raged for four years and at the end between 620,000 and 750,000 people were dead and much of the infrastructure of the southern states was destroyed. The North won, resulting in the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of approximately four million slaves. You're probably thinking, what does any of this have to do with our text for today? When we look at Judges, we see that whenever the Israelites turned to idolatry, it resulted in them being handed over to the nations around them and Israel became enslaved to one or more of the nations around them. The slavery only ended when they cried out in repentance to God and a rescuer was raised up. When we left Israel last time, they had been handed over to the Ammonites and the Philistines. After 18 years, they cried out to God for rescue, but as we saw, their repentance wasn't real. So God told them to cry out to their idols for rescue because he wasn't going to rescue them. When the Israelites realised their error, they truly repented and again called out for rescue and then gathered at Mizpah to prepare for battle. But they still didn't know who that rescuer was. Today we find out who that rescuer is and what a doozy he is. Like Gideon, Jephthah is introduced as a mighty warrior. But that's pretty much where the likeness to Gideon ends and we soon realise Jephthah has more in common with Abimelech. We are told in chapter 11 verse 1, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, like Gideon, but he was the son of a prostitute, is illegitimate, like Abimelech. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute, another surprising and unexpected choice. In the eyes of the world, leaders are people who have been to the right schools, come from the right families, say all the right things and know how to act appropriately. Look at the furor Donald Trump's election and time as US President caused, or in Australia, the election of Pauline Hanson to the Australian Senate. 
Another thing to consider about leaders is that in most countries, a national or world leader shouldn't have a criminal record. If Jephthah was around today, that's one thing he would have. Jephthah had none of the leadership qualities the world requires or looks for. He didn't come from the right family. How could he? He was illegitimate. And as a result of being illegitimate, his brothers drove him out of the household. Probably at a young age where he was forced to fend for himself and most likely, as the text indicates, <coughs> living as a criminal. Definitely not what the world looks for in leaders. Having been driven out of home, Jephthah grew up in a foreign land and to survive almost certainly would have followed the cultural and religious practices of the society around him. He had to be tough and ruthless. Because of this, he attracted and led a band of followers, worthless men like himself, surviving by robbing others. Jephthah could be described as a mafia boss, the president of an outlaw motorcycle gang, a king of the underworld, a pirate, if you like, to all intents and purposes, he was a pagan outcast living a life of crime and violence. Verses 4 to 11 reveal the leaders of Gilead went to the land of Tob to ask Jephthah to be their leader and lead them into battle. This is the equivalent of the Australian Prime Minister or the New South Wales Premier going to the President of the Comancheros or the Rebels Bikey Gang and asking them to take over as PM or Premier. So I'll read verses 4 to uh, 6 now. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. <laughs> this is unique. No other judge becomes a leader by being invited to do so by the Israelites. Jephthah knows the elders that cast him out. It's likely some of them were his half-brothers. When they come to him, he's sceptical. He questions their motives, their intentions, as we see in verse 7. Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? In an echo of God's response to the Israelites' cry for mercy in chapter 10, Jephthah is saying, you only want me now because you're in trouble. In the same way that God sought true repentance and an understanding from the Israelites that he alone is the one true God, so Jephthah seeks Gilead's assurance and realization that with rescue comes subjection to the rule of the rescuer, and if successful, he will rule over all of them. When the elders of Gilead assure Jephthah that is exactly what they want, he accepts. These exchanges show God's people must learn that the way they treat God's judge is the way in which they, in fact, treat God himself. And as each of the judges or leaders is a type and points the way to God's greatest judge, the Lord Jesus, it shows us that the way people treat Jesus is, in fact, the way they are treating God. You cannot respect God or truly repent without acknowledging the right of Jesus to rule in your life. And you cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting or submitting to his right to rule. Rescue and submission go together. Let's look at verses 8 to 10. 
And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. The elders of Gilead want to use Jephthah to win their battle. So they flatter him. They butter him up. But Jephthah is not a fool and he doesn't buy it. Jephthah didn't rise to his position as a crime boss because of his circumstances and the elders didn't come to him because he was related. Jephthah got to where he was because of his background and the elders came to him because of that background. Jephthah had had to grow up fast, be tough and keep his wits about him. He had to learn how to survive and win. The alternative was to lose and die. To survive, Jephthah had to know the culture of the people around him and use it to his advantage. Today it would be said he had street smarts. Jephthah was shrewd and a skilled fighter. He was introduced as a mighty warrior and as we have just seen, he was a skilled negotiator. His response to the elders makes them ask again, but this time out of humility and genuine need. The result? Both sides get what they need. The elders get someone to lead them into battle and Jephthah gets revenge on his brothers. But there's more involved here than getting revenge or defeating the oppressors. Verses 10 and 11 tell us the agreements made between the elders and Jephthah are made as solemn oaths before the Lord. Because the elders had truly repented before God, they were going to keep their word and Jephthah knew it. And to show the elders they could trust him, Jephthah swore an oath before God to lead them and win victory for them. From this point on, words become particularly important. In his dealings with the elders of Gilead, we see Jephthah as a shrewd negotiator, a diplomat, a sweet talker who knows how to use words to his advantage. But he also didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. However, oaths sworn and confirmed as their leader, Jephthah doesn't immediately go to war with the Ammonites. Instead, he attempts to seek a diplomatic solution. He sends envoys asking what the Ammonites have against them and what has caused them to attack Israel. The Ammonites reply that in the past the land was theirs and they want it back. And again with diplomacy intact, Jephthah replies... He uses historical and theological arguments and legal precedents to prove the Ammonites' claims are wrong in an attempt to stop an all-out war. And then just like today when the diplomatic attempts fail, Jephthah leads the Israelites into battle. And as we see from verse 29, Jephthah will have success because the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Meaning, one, that while Jephthah was appointed to the role of leader by the Israelites, God endorses Jephthah as the leader. And two, God will win the battle for the Israelites. Therefore, the outcome is certain. Jephthah should have known this. But due to immersing himself in the culture in which he grew up, Jephthah believes he must negotiate a deal with God to win. Jephthah has faith that God will win the battle, 
but he also has doubts, just as Gideon did when he was called. Because of these doubts, we see in verse 30, Jephthah opens his mouth and makes another vow to the Lord. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah was a smooth talker, but sometimes he didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. Making this vow was one of those times, because as we will see, it will have extremely tragic consequences. Vow made, Jephthah leads the Israelites into battle, and the victory is absolute, and Jephthah returns to his home in triumph as a victorious judge and the leader of Israel. If the script for the earlier judges' cycles was being followed, this should now be the point at which there is peace. But the exact opposite happens. Remember that second vow that Jephthah made? Let's move to verses 34 to 39. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancers. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Arriving home, the first thing to come out of the door of Jephthah's house is his daughter, his only child. Jephthah is distraught. He is beside himself. Jephthah half blames his daughter and bemoans the reality that he has made a vow to the Lord he cannot break. What is even more incredible is that Jephthah's daughter insists he keep it. This is probably the worst, the vilest thing we have seen so far in Judges, and it raises three questions. The first, what exactly had Jephthah promised in the oath he made to God? Many people have interpreted the passage to mean Jephthah was going to sacrifice an animal. But as the Israelites didn't keep pets like we do, it would be unlikely there were any animals in the house. More tellingly, if Jephthah's oath had been to sacrifice an animal, then Jephthah would not have considered the oath to be binding when his daughter came out of the house. Others interpret the meaning of Jephthah's vow by using his daughter's response in verse 37. And they believe it to mean that because of Jephthah's vow, she would never marry and be condemned to perpetual virginity, never to fulfill her cultural duty. But her request for a two-month reprieve, literally a stay of execution, doesn't make sense 
unless Jephthah sacrifices his daughter. The reality is that in line with the culture in which he grew up, Jephthah's oath was that he would make a human sacrifice to God if he were given the victory. Jephthah expected the first person to come out of his house would be a servant. But as we keep seeing in Judges, the unexpected happens, and Jephthah's only child is the first to come out and greet him. Deuteronomy 12 verse 31 says that human sacrifice is detestable and something the Lord hates. There is no doubt about God's will in this matter. So the second question, why does Jephthah make the vow? Due to being kicked out and forced to make his own way in life, Jephthah grew up in the pagan cultures around Israel, cultures that were violent, cultures that were not subject to the Levitical laws the Israelites observed, cultures where the practice of human sacrifice to appease their gods occurred. To rise to the top and to survive, Jephthah would have had to fight and probably kill anyone opposed to him. Living in this culture would have drastically altered his understanding of God and deeply desensitized Jephthah towards violence. Jephthah let the worldly violence and pagan beliefs of the culture around him coexist alongside the true beliefs of the land of his birth. This is a warning to us as it shows someone can profess faith in God but at the same time let the world squeeze and mold them into its mold. For us, it's more likely the world's attitudes towards sex, money or materialism that will come in and live alongside our true beliefs. Paul warns of this in Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Secondly, Jephthah was not only infected by the pagan culture surrounding him, but also by their pagan understanding of God's character. Jephthah had no concept or understanding of a God of grace, a relational God, a God who would redeem his people because he loved them, a God who out of love and selflessness took the punishment for mankind's sin upon himself. Jephthah's understanding was that gods needed to be appeased or brought off by way of offerings and sacrifices, especially human sacrifices. From growing up in the pagan culture of Tob, Jephthah understood that the best, the most effective way to buy off or appease a pagan god was through human sacrifice. Through performing human sacrifices, pagan worshippers say to their god, Let me show you how impressed and awed I am by your power. Because of this, Jephthah believed the Lord needed to be impressed and could be bought and controlled through a lavish gift, a human sacrifice. But the Lord, the God of the Bible, wants only one kind of human sacrifice, the self-sacrifice of offering him lordship of every area of our lives. This is not done to secure his favour, but in response to it, as we see in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Thirdly, why did Jephthah keep his vow? Jephthah views and understands God to be the same as the pagan gods he grew up with 
a being whose favour can and needs to be earned through flattery and lavish sacrifices. But when he realises his vow has trapped him, why doesn't he confess its foolishness and break it? Because Jephthah has no concept of a God of grace. He does not fully trust God. And Jephthah believes if he doesn't keep his vow, God will strike him down. All Jephthah had ever known and believed was that if you want the gods to do something for you, you had to appease them through a sacrifice. It was this same pagan works righteousness view of God that led him to make the oath. And so fearing the wrath of God and wanting to save himself, Jephthah carried out his vow and sacrificed his daughter. At this point, we are usually told Israel had peace for X number of years. But this doesn't happen here. Instead, we are told that Jephthah was judged for six years, but not that the land had peace. Why not? Because Ephraim insults Jephthah by complaining about not being asked to help the defeat of the Ammonites. In response, Jephthah justifies his position of not asking Ephraim for help in the same way he did earlier with the Ammonites. But he doesn't wait for a response. Instead, Jephthah calls on the men of Gilead to fight and defeat Ephraim. Jephthah starts a civil war, all because he and Gilead had been insulted. Facing the enemies of God's people, Jephthah was careful to be diplomatic and peaceful. But here against fellow Israelites, he has no hesitation to strike those who oppose him. The civil war is vicious and bloody. Gilead gains control, pretty much wiping out Ephraim as they do so, and they are the ultimate victors. But in any civil war, are there really any victors? In 12 verse 7, we are told that Jephthah was judged for six years and then he died. But there is still no mention that the land had peace. What can we learn from this judge? Obviously, Jephthah teaches us to be careful with our words. Once said, they cannot be unsaid. We need to pray that God will set a guard over our mouths, as it says in Psalm 141, verse 3. But there are two deeper lessons that this passage teaches us. First, that we are far more affected by our culture than we are by the Bible, and that we are far more affected by our culture than we think we are. It's easy to see how Jephthah ignored what the scriptures he had told him about who God is and how sacred human life is. And it's easy to see how instead he listened to the pagan cultures around him about serving God and living life. Surely we don't have to think too hard about how other cultures would be and indeed are amazed at how much money Christians in Western cultures spend on themselves or in other ways in which we live our lives and treat others or how we let the ideas, beliefs and actions of the culture around us shape our view of the scriptures and the way we live, believe and act. Jephthah makes us look at ourselves and ask, what blind spots do I have? If we really want to know the answer to that, we will be regular and humble Bible readers. Secondly, Jephthah shows us how big a struggle it is for God's people to believe, to have faith in a God of grace, a God who gave his own son as a sacrifice for sin. A God who came and dwelt among us living a perfect life so he could be the perfect atoning sacrifice and pave the way for us to be washed clean from sin and restored to relationship with God. 
a God who loves us and provides for us. The first lie the serpent told Adam and Eve was designed to make them disbelieve that God had their best interests in mind and thereby destroy their trust in God. Ever since, we have always felt we have to control God, pay God, and deserve God. We cannot simply trust God to love us and bless us. It is well worth asking ourselves, in what ways would I live or act differently if I had complete faith in God and really believed God was completely committed to love me and bless me and work what is best for me? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, while vile and gruesome, the account of Jephthah shows us many of the things and attitudes that occur in the world around us today are the same as those in the time of the judges. We pray, Lord, that you help us not be like the Israelites, but instead to be truly repentant and grieve over the sin in our lives and the world. We pray that you help us to turn from our sin and not let the temptations of the world take over our lives and squeeze you out. Help us to understand that the world's ways and your ways cannot coexist in our lives, that we need to give you lordship of every area of our lives. Help us to trust you and know that you are a God of grace, mercy and love, to know that you are relational and want to be in relationship with us, to remember that you are in charge no matter what the situation around us is and that because of your love for us, we can trust you implicitly that we do not need to make vows or perform acts to impress you. We pray that you show us our failings and need and bring us to the one who can meet them and in whose name we pray. Amen.